in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome back to another Integrated Interventions podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Dundas. I'm the Director of Education. And joining us today is Holly Goodman, the Executive Director of the Isaac Foundation, uh, as well as Chris Garrett, our Executive Director of Integrated Interventions. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Patrick. Yep, always appreciated. I've been excited for this podcast because the Isaac Foundation has been doing tremendous work uh, for a long time in the Inland Northwest. Uh, So we'll go ahead and start there for those who aren't familiar with the work that you do. Can you please tell us about the Isaac Foundation, um, what you guys do as a foundation, and how you got your start? Sure. Well, I'll probably just start with how we got our start. My oldest son, Isaac, when he was 15 months old, he was identified with red flags for autism. And then right before his second birthday, he was officially diagnosed with autism. And in those days, it meant that we lost all of our insurance coverage because we live over in Washington. And the insurance structure at that time was that autism was an excluded diagnosis. So they didn't have to provide therapy interventions for a child with that diagnosis. So we struggled along. Our strategy at that point was to hire a therapist, show me what to do. And then I would just imitate it, record it, um, try and, you know, just duplicated as much as I could in my house. And then after I kind of hit a stumbling block or things were stalling, then I would, you know, reconnect with, you know, speech therapist, occupational therapist, a floor time therapist is what we were doing at that time. And then we would get kind of through that next hurdle and away we would go. And unfortunately, my son passed away unexpectedly in 2007. And I was very angry because it is challenging when you have a child on the autism spectrum, I would imagine with any disability, let alone then with the extra pressures of of then the financial impact of that. And believe me, we did think about coming over to Idaho and, and living on the Idaho side because you guys over here in Idaho have the Katie Beckett waiver. And so that was just much, much, much better. Early interventions, they recognized the earlier we could provide early interventions, the better prognosis. And so anyway, after Isaac passed away, I was very angry. And so my philosophy at that point was I wanted to start a nonprofit that helped to fill the gaps financially at that point. So essentially, we we gave out annual therapy grants to families to cover those out-of-pocket expenses for therapy interventions. But as um, time proved that no longer could Washington exclude insurance services to children with an autism diagnosis, so we had be- developed these wonderful relationships with families, and we recognized that there was a lot of gaps still that families were really struggling with. And uh, so that was where, since we weren't having to put as much money into therapy grants, it allowed, freed up some funding that we could then provide other therapy support, or other different types of supports. And it started out with emotional support programs. We found that, um, you know, during this time, I gave birth to my son, Caleb, and he went on to be diagnosed with high-functioning autism. And ironically, I wasn't as afraid. I was... It was still hard. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, there was, you know, like a mourning process. You know, it's interesting that when Isaac was diagnosed, there's a mourning process because you're expecting, you know, I did fertility in order to have Isaac. And so you're expecting this, you know, idyllic um, idea of what it would be to be a parent and all the things you're going to do. And then you get the autism diagnosis and you realize that your track is different. And all of my friends are on that track I thought I was going to be on. It's There's a wonderful, um, you know, 
it's not really a poem, but a writing, a post out there. It's like, welcome to Norway. Um, you are preparing your whole life because you're going to go to Norway and you learn the language, you learn all the things. And then when you land, uh, you find out you're in, in Spain and you don't speak the language. And so you see all of your friends in Norway and they're posting all these fantastic pictures of Norway, but you're in Spain. And you find through the process that Spain is a beautiful place, but there is a little bit of mourning at first because you're not where you thought you were going to be. And so once my son Isaac passed away, I realized that mourning the physical loss of a child is very similar um, to mourning the lot. Like when you get the diagnosis of autism, there is the same phases of grief because you're having to, again, you're getting adjusted to being in Spain, not in Norway. It's still beautiful and you learn how beautiful and wonderful it is. You learn the language, but it is a process. And so when my son Caleb was diagnosed, my transition was much faster. Like not to say that there wasn't some grief and sadness, but since I'd already been to Spain, um, proverbially, you know, um, it was just better. But I really started appreciating the reason that I think it was also easier is that, you know, I knew some systems and how to navigate it, but I also had a network of people like parents. I had made built relationships with families through the Isaac foundation that were in the same boat. They were also in Spain. And so no longer was I the only one in Spain. I had a wonderful group of parents that I could connect with. And so that was the first chapter of, of then what Isaac Foundation was going to do. So we provide parent support programs and we do those a couple of times a month. We do a coffee chat. We do an evening moms group. But then we started recognizing that an interesting turn of events, again, because you build these relationships with families, an interesting turn of events was that I was, some families were having to put services on hold for their child with autism because uh, the siblings were starting to struggle. We're talking about, you know, promiscuity, exploring with um, alcohol and drugs, running away, life-threatening eating disorders. And it was like, whoa, hold the phone. What is happening? And so then it really became evident that in this entire equation, the population that we haven't been paying enough attention to is the neurotypical siblings. So Isaac Foundation for the last 10 years has been doing a real robust sibling support program. And um, so again, you know, we do a lot of different things. I could go on and on about how the awesome things we do, but all of it is stems from we have relationships with families and we really are dialed into, you know, what is lacking here? What are the biggest struggles? Are they, you know, state programs, Okay, well, we can help you navigate those. But there's, you know, unseen things that families really need. And I think that's one of the most unique things about the Isaac Foundation is that we're able to, we're not part of a big organization that has the corporate, um, I call that the mothership. Um, there's no mothership. And so it allows us to be more responsive to situations that are under addressed. And so, you know, here we are 15 years later, Isaac Foundation. So that was a really long explanation about, I mean, I could go on and on because that's only just the tip of the iceberg, but in a nutshell, that's, I think I call that the secret sauce to the Isaac Foundation and why we have such a diverse offering in terms of just all the programs that we have. Well, and so like you've done a great job at seeing the needs and addressing the needs kind of as they unfolded, because there was a lot of seemed like unintended things that occurred that along with your journey. Um, can you talk about the community education piece, which is, of course, how we came into contact with you? And then I'd also like to go over to Chris so he can talk about um, his his side of it and, and his journey and, um, with autism spectrum. 
Um, so I guess we'll start with the community education part, then we'll walk around because it, it all is kind of wide ranging and encompassing. It all finds its way back. Well, that's exactly it. It all kind of circles back to the, you know, so kind of where we started from. And, and so it was exactly that. It was realizing that families had a tremendous amount of fear. It started out, it was the first responder training program because families had a tremendous amount of fear that first responders didn't understand autism. They didn't understand the disability community and they're nationally were lots of examples of, you know, individuals with autism and other disabilities having life-ending altercations with first responders. And I'm not saying law enforcement necessarily. We had a person that jumped out of a moving ambulance during transport because they were so overstimulated and escalated that they were not properly restrained and they jumped out of, on an interstate and, and, and died. So it wasn't just, you know, law enforcement. So let's be clear on that regard. So we were wanting to build, fortunately in that time, uh, a lot of firefighters and first responders utilize Isaac Foundation for grants because again, they needed, they have kids with autism and they needed support. So I went to the firefighters union, which was one of my sponsors and said, Hey, let's do this partnership and do originally I pitched it community. Um, like a park event so that we could get acclimated to working and being around first responders. And that was when uh, John Goodman from the Spokane Fire Department said, well, that's great, but what we really need is training. And that was that aha moment of the, you know, that's an interesting idea. How many sectors is there really insufficient education on autism in particular? So we started out um, as a partnership with the city of Spokane Fire Department, and we were testing our curriculum there and then then teachers were like hey where's our training and then other community partners you know churches that have children's program that serve youth were saying we're really struggling can you come in and do a training and then we started working with group homes um, in Spokane and that was where all the material is it's you know essentially what our training does is under we help you to understand what's going on inside the mind and the body of a person with autism and we're helping to teach what the behavior is communicating well it doesn't matter how you apply that in whatever context if it's in a classroom if it's in a first response encounter or if it's in you know context of like integrated interventions it all works um, really the only anomaly there is that you know explain to me how you work with individuals with autism so I can give you specific examples of how and and, and why and when. And so that, and we've been working together with you guys now for many years. And it's been, I, I since you keep having me come back, I'm saying it's successful. So, yeah, yeah. It, it most definitely is. And like our most recent training that we had with you, the amount of positive feedback that came from it and those kind of aha moments that were generated as a result of that. Well, I've noticed these things, but I didn't know what, what do you call this exactly? Or how is this explained? And you being able to touch on that really opened up a lot of doors and, and conversations for our mentors that work with integrated interventions. Yeah, lots of, uh, and there's never training that I have done for, you know, for teachers, for community partners, for like first responders that I haven't had people come up and say, oh my goodness. Like the aha moments and how this now makes total sense. And sometimes there's some, oh, if only I could go back and rewind time because I had this one situation and you touched on that so perfectly, but I didn't know at the time. And so it's, but if, as long as you're taking that into the future and then having that, that perspective moving forward, it's still good. You know, we can't go back and change what's done, but moving into the future with, you know, newfound knowledge is always powerful. 
Yeah, definitely. I know from, from my perspective, I can relate to a lot of things you're saying just on the, the therapist side of things. Um, working in the community as a therapist for a number of years before jumping on board with integrated, I, I would often initially have families come with their, uh, son or daughter who was on the autism spectrum and they would be like, they really need some help. Uh, and I'd start working with that individual and pretty soon one of the identified problems was that mom and dad don't necessarily understand what's going on. So then it turns into education for parents. And, and then you find out, you know, a year into it, well, we've got a neurotypical son or daughter who has been taking on a, a huge, a huge weight. Um, and also doesn't understand what's going on, but they're expected to, to become a caregiver because we're both out working every day and they're, they're home taking care of this individual. So it, it, it would morph into all these things. And before you know it, you're, you're doing complete family work as opposed to just working with. The oh, it's wraparound services. Yeah. yeah. It's total yeah. wraparound services. And for counselors, they don't, they oftentimes don't go out into the community. They don't educate. They, they get paid for their, their 45 minutes or hour that they're in there. Um, and that's it. And then it's on to the next person. And, and you've got a whole week in between before you see that individual again or the family. Um, so, so having c- people in the community that can come in and, and educate is, is huge because there's, there's just not a lot of counselors out there that will do that or have time to do it or have even found that niche to go out and educate. So uh, for us, and especially with integrated Joshua and I can talk to we're blue in the face about a wide number of things and we get all technical and everybody's just like, what, I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. You're, you're way outside the box here. Um, so, so definitely having people in the community that are doing this and know what they're doing, come in and teach our staff. We see so many, like we we're talking about aha moments, our staff at that point, I think we had 40 people in that training. Yes. Um, and so 42 many, to be exact. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. It was so many. I yeah. was so impressed. It, so many came up to us and they're just like, wow, now I've, I recognize what happened with this student and this individual last week, and now I can apply these other things. So we, we always see a bump in productivity with our staff after those trainings and their interactions become so much more positive. And the, and the other side of that, the flip side of that too, is when I'm working with, with parents and siblings and things like that, I always go back to that unique skill that, that we have, you know, if, if you're more neurotypical of theory of mind, of being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And, and if you can figure out what that individual you're working with, what they're thinking, um, you can get inside their head. They don't necessarily have the ability to do that with you. Nine times out of 10, they don't. There's, there, there are individuals on the spectrum that are good at that. Um, they're not good at translating that to how they interact with people though. Um, but for the most part, we, we have this theory of mind thing. We can put ourselves in their shoes and, and, and try to see the world from their perspective. And then, then you can really get in there and help yes. <laughs> when, you, when you can start putting yourself there and see the world from their perspective. Um, the way you explain things to them, all, all that kind of comes together and, and then you can make some real progress with that individual. So yeah, I, I just think the training for our staff, um, especially through the Isaac foundation has just been phenomenal. It's, it's helped us out so much over the years. Well, you know, I get the question, you know, are you a, what type of therapy provider is Holly? And the answer is, Oh, I'm not one. You know, I never went to college to be a therapy provider, but I think when you go back and you trace, you know, my, how I entered the world of, of autism is 
because we had no insurance and I was having to hire providers to show me what to do. And then I had to really be dialed into observing behavior to try and figure out what it meant because then I would go and talk to the provider. I would take a video clip and take it to the provider. I, I honestly think that's the reason why I am one of those parents that I can understand what's going on inside of the mind and the body because that was, so if there is you know, it's very unfortunate that that was the, the cards that we were dealt early on, but it really is beneficial in terms of just what my knowledge base is and that time that you spend getting into someone else's, you know, space to understand what does this behavior communicate or what is the need that needs to be addressed here. And so that's, you know, probably where it came from. And then it's, of course, been all peer-reviewed because that's what you have to, when you don't have a degree in this site, you know, specifically, it all has to be peer-reviewed um, by various providers to make sure that it is, in fact, and they're saying, and that's a lot of the feedback is, I'm surprised that you know so much of this. Um, but when you're in the trenches and you don't have any other options, it's amazing how fast you learn it. But it is true with parents. It's, you don't understand, they don't under, there's not a manual. They don't give you this training when, oh, your child's diagnosed with autism. We have this fantastic training. That's not what happens. Well, and especially all the various aspects to it, um, which I, you know, that is something that's super important on the community education side. I want to touch on, um, you know, working with, you know, the, you talked about the EMS and the police. Um, has this understanding, you feel like, led to less incidents now that people are understanding that this individual is on the autism spectrum and these are the things we need to work out um, or look at? Can you touch on that? Because I think that is one of the coolest things. I mean, there's so many cool things that you do, but in terms of having like more of a broader community understanding, I feel like that's kind of led to that by having these trainings. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, and in Washington, there was legislation that passed in Washington state that requires first responders to have disability training. And so my, um, John Goodman and I, he, we actually ended up falling in love and getting married. Um, we actually were, sat on the work committee that came up with the training elements. Specifically, we were called in to be subject matter experts on autism, but the whole goal is, is that we've known for a long time that with all disabilities, first responders are under trained because it's not something that they spend training hours and training time learning. And so, you know, understand that this is a 45 minute training and they wanted a segment on autism. There is no, the whole training is 45 minutes for all disabilities. And so there's like four minutes, five minutes of it that's specific to autism and, you know, it was the best in terms of state requirements that we could get. But in terms of working with law enforcement, working with fire departments, we also work with search and rescue and EMS. It's tremendous because really, again, what we're teaching, you might have the benefit of a parent or caregiver that's with that person that can give you the information that they need. But there are other anomalies that we have to take into consideration. We just talked about one of them. Sometimes parents and caregivers don't understand what, why their child behaves the way that they do. Uh, so they really can't give you good information to understand what is happening in that moment or the, what need needs to be addressed or how to de-escalate a situation. So again, there's lack of knowledge just from parents or caregivers in terms of how to support that person. So how are they going to convey it to first responders? And then too, sometimes there's just situations where you have incidences that involve the parent or caregiver and they're not in a space that they can communicate. Hey, by the way, my loved one that's meandering this room with me has autism. 
or another disability. So it is really, really, really important that we teach and we spend a lot of time understanding the characteristics of autism, ASD level three, ASD level two, and ASD level one. And um, it's funny because there's been some, well, you know, I don't think we need that amount of time focusing on the characteristics of each one. And, and I push back and I argue because I really do think that it's important to understand that space and what to expect and what these terms mean. Because again, there are so many variables in a first response encounter that we can't, we can't calculate. And so we really need to spend even, so, you know, I, didn't spend as much time with you guys because you're, you know, you work in a space where day to day you're working with people with autism, whereas first responders, you know, they don't. So I spend actually more time diving in deeper about what these characteristics are because they need to be comfortable with it. And then more so, what is the behavior communicating? So when I see this, what are, what could they be communicating and what things am I in control of that I could support this person to help deescalate the situation and help the person be more successful? My favorite, I love getting testimonials about how awesome the training is and good, the aha moments. I also love saying, oh, I took your training and then I had this situation and this is what happened. And because of your training, we had this great, you know, you know, outcome. But the ones I love the most is when it comes from first response sector, because that is the difference between potentially life and death. Um, and that's where it matters. And so... Now, if I can make a shameless plug real quick, uh, while we do train first responders to be amazing, we also have always acknowledged that, and this is where I think we got the emotional buy-in for first responders because they were very reluctant. Oh, we're, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm a professional. I know. Like I've worked with, you know, I've encountered people with autism before. Great. Fantastic. You're so amazing. Thank you for your service and all the things that you know. <clears throat> but one of the things that I think where the emotional buy-in came for first responders being more invested in it is that we spend a lot of time doing, creating opportunities for our loved ones with autism to interact with first responders before it's a 911 critical situation. So just this last Saturday, we had our, in our new space, because, because of COVID, we haven't been able to do station, we called them station visits, where we would shut down a fire station for 45 minutes. We would invite our autism population to come. We would have ambulance present. We would have the police present. And then we would have the uh, fire truck. And we would have all of those first responders. And we practice interacting and playing games in a very positive, non-emergent situation, because we have to create positive associations because let's be real up until that point the only time they've ever had access to first responders is when something traumatic is happening right so all of a sudden we create those opportunities so that we have positive associations with first responders in uniform so that then helps when you have a 911 situation happen and if they have some positive associations and not just all negative things that also increases outcomes and we do have expectations you know we don't we have to be careful of bubble space we have need to show first responders the fronts of our bodies you notice i didn't say our face i don't care if you actually look them in the in the eye but you need to turn the front of your body to them so that they can help you so we practice all of these things and that also has really been a game changer. And again, it was in part emotional buy-in from the first responders knowing that we do have an expectation for our population and what we want to see them to be able to do. You know, going up and be able to, with confidence, say, here's my name, here's my address, here's my parents' phone number. So we practice those things too. Um, so that also, I think, 
in terms of first response world change their willingness to really go all in on the training because it's wraparound, you know, it's not a, you know, this is your guys's problem and you just have to be better. You know, this is a, a community wide piece. This is parents being part of it. You, you know, parents have to understand and know that it's important to be talking about first responders in a positive way. Um, and again, so we do all of that and it's really changed. It's changed perceptions. It, it seems like there's a level of frustration tolerance built into that too, for the individual on the spectrum that, that comes in and has to see the lights and hear the noises and all the different things so that they're, they're more used to that yeah. when, when the time comes, because most of the time the first responders aren't rolling up with the lights off and the, and the, and the horns off and all that stuff, you know, unless they have a big heads up ahead of time or they're trying to sneak up on somebody. Um, but for them to just be exposed to it and have that, okay, I've been here before. I've seen this before. It bothers me, but it was okay last time. Yeah. Nothing bad happened to me. Interestingly enough, we had a situation because we practice, practice, practice. And this young lady in particular, we had to practice. She's so auditorially sensitive that just seeing the lights on the vehicle and the f- lights usually mean sirens, right? It took us probably a year to just get her really comfortable with the vehicles and getting them in the back of the ambulance because we have to practice loading and unloading because that's primarily how we transport is using an ambulance, preferably over the backseat of a police car. Um, But with that being said, they were involved in a really bad car accident and mom was just, she was dazed because of the, the magnitude of the car accident. And when her daughter heard the siren, she says, oh, first responders are there to help you. And as soon as they got her out of the vehicle, she immediately walked over to the ambulance and crawled in the back of the ambulance because that was her safe place. She had done it so many times, so many times that she was like, do to do. And so they were like, oh, this is awesome because she's safe and she's calm and she's happy. Do to do. Where's my balloon glove? Uh, you know what I mean? And there was and because it worked, it worked. So lots of practice and repetition yes. involved in this process. Lots and lots of repetition. That's, yeah, yeah, that's what we tell our families is you came one time and it was so great, but you need to come again. The other thing is we talk about reinforcers and, you know, ABA world and, you know, positive reinforcers. But, you know, sometimes what happens is our kids love first responders so much that they do naughty things um, and sometimes start fires and do things like that because guess what happens? They all come to my house and it's so great. So what we use, how we use that as in a positive way is that, you know, if we're getting the desired behavior and they're, you know, working on a behavior chart and they are awesome and wonderful, they get to come to the station visit or we call it friends with first responders now because we're doing them at our venue. So now COVID can't lock us out of any place. So we can do them all the time. Um, but that's that reinforcer for them. We say to parents, use this as a reward that they are doing the things that they need to do. And again, we're trying to replace doing naughty things to bring first responders with the, I get to go and now spend time and do all these things and I get to put on their their bunker jackets and all the things. And it's been really positive in that way too. And parents feel a little guilty. Well, we don't want it because we do, you know, limit it to 15 to 17 kids because obviously, you know, excessive numbers are not our friend in the autism world. It creates a lot of extra stimulation. So families feel guilty about that. And I'm like, "Mm, no, you know, we, again, when we're working on improving behaviors, if that is a reward and it's, we're not seeing some of that deviant 
sort of fire starting behaviors or again running away because then police officers come to start looking you know we need to reward that in a positive way how do sensory profiles play into this process and can you talk about the importance of sensory profiles the message you're going to hear repeatedly is that we're building sensory profiles so part of the reason that people tease oh holly's just the autism whisperer really i'm not but every time i need to meet a new person with autism i'm interacting with them. I'm observing how they're interacting in their environment, how they interact with other people, and I'm building a sensory profile. So just how they're interacting in their environment gives me a lot of information about their sensory preferences and their sensory limitations. And so that then helps me know what areas, if I start seeing some escalation and more agitation, and I'm observing certain types of behavior, because behavior is communication, then again, as I'm building and I'm learning more about that person, I'm building that sensory profile. So then I know kind of what the thresholds are. And on a good day, we can maybe push some of those thresholds um, where I might see some hypersensitivities, but we're really well regulated. And when we are coming, um, we can push some of those things. But um, it's all about, that's where the success is. If you understand what the behaviors you're seeing and how they're interacting in their environment, it gives you a lot of information so that you can just very subtly without a lot of effort and a lot of, you know, hoop to do I guess I should say, you can make modifications and adjustments and you know where you can push them, when you can push them, and areas that we're not quite ready to push in. And so that's really one of the biggest things if we understand that. Now, how this rolls out, like search and rescue, I mentioned that we teach search and rescue. You know, when you understand the sensory profile for a person and you have to then search for them in a very vast area, knowing their sensor, sensory profile, where they're, where they would be drawn, things that they're going to seek out versus things that they need to avoid because it's overstimulating. At least then you can start, you know, circling areas. Um, where, you know, it's not likely that we, you know, we still need to search there, but it's going to be maybe the seventh thing that we look at. So it, you know, in terms of first response world, it's really important um, for them because again, in first response world, things are moving like at a ridiculously rate of speed. So for them, it's very important for them to be having a lot of practice observing and building sensory profiles quickly. And so that's in first response rule. That's a lot of what we're doing is we're watching quick videos and now tell me what you're seeing so that I can tell that they're understanding, just observing how they're stimming in their, in their, in their bedroom can give us some information about what sensory um, systems they are seeking or areas that they're hypersensitive, which is going to be very important information in first response rule because it just moves so much faster than real time. Well, that seems helpful for you too, Chris, like as a therapist, being able to utilize information. Essentially, you're gathering that information that can be contributed to a sensory profile in a therapeutic setting. Yeah, absolutely. Especially working with families, that's that's where you get a lot of that information too, because you don't often as a therapist get to observe that. You're not in the home with the family. You're not out in public with the family, those sort of things. So, so a lot of that comes from gathering from family and then working with the family on those things. And like Holly's talking about being able to point out what are, what do they need in those moments and what's going on? It's also important, at least for our program, because every individual on the spectrum is so different. Um, you can do an autism training in it and certain parts will apply to one individual in the program. And, and there's parts of the training that don't apply to that individual at all, but they apply fully to another individual. So being able to, to tease that out and get to know who you're working with, so important for our staff. 
And it's important to the families too, you know, that they'll call and check and, oh, did you, did you know that they hate running water? You guys have been trying to force them into a shower for the last week. Okay, well, maybe there's a different way to clean your body that doesn't involve hot water dripping on you, you know. So, so it's important just across the board for our staff and, and for us to really understand what's going on with that individual. And, and having that profile is it, it's super important. And you learn something new pretty much every day, you know. Oh, it, that it is never so ends. true. Yes. <laughs> it's, yes, you're still honing yeah. your craft. And that's even as an autism parent for as long as I've been an autism parent mm-hmm. and working with thousands of families who have loved ones who are different. I mean, there's not two individuals with autism. They're ever the same. I'm still Mm -hmm. learning something new every day. Yeah. And they're always pushing against our assumptions. Yes. We're always assuming, well, because I know this much about this individual, they're not going to like this activity. Well, then you go into the activity and all of a sudden they love it and it becomes a thing. And now they're obsessed with it. And if you hadn't tried that before, you may not have ever found a skill or something that they could really latch on to that would help them uh, be more social, introduce them to, to new things in life that they weren't going to introduce themselves to. That, that was just too overwhelming. Um, but because you pushed the envelope a little bit and you knew the individual and you went at it, you know, in, in a manner that was comfortable for them, you can really find some, some cool things. Uh, lots of people in my life uh, on the spectrum where we've found that to be the case, uh, initially assuming, you know, they won't, they won't like this. It's going to be too much. It's going to be too overwhelming. Um, but if you push a little bit and introduce it in a way that makes sense to them, you can often find a, a lot of growth in those areas. Well, and to what you're saying too, it's the sensory profile is important because if you know that they're well-regulated, then trying to introduce something new is going to be something that's going to, if that's your target time, because mm-hmm. again, if you're dysregulated or you're super anxious, learning doesn't happen in that space. And so it's, it's knowing the sensory profile and knowing if they're more regulated helps you to know when you can push it mm-hmm. because you know, I'm, I love pushing the envelope and exposing the kids to different things. Whereas parents are say, Oh no, 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 no. We would never do that. But again, it's all in being in that like, um, you know, a regulated state to be able to say, yeah, this is the time we're going to try it. We're just going to try it. And yeah. And knowing that you're the individual that likes to push them yeah, and they already know that. So they know that they're going to expect that where if the parent is the one that's never pushing them and then all of a sudden start trying to, that's dysregulating itself. Yes. So what I so can get away with. with Holly, <laughs> but it's not going to happen with mom and dad. There's yeah. no way Holly's safe for this. Mom and dad are going to get pissed off and not, <laughs> it's not going to go well. Um, it's too yeah. overwhelming. So. Well, and we talk about building social skills cause we run Isaac's clubhouse uh, and it's after school on Tuesdays for kids in the sixth grade through 12th. And funny thing is, again, I tell parents like, I'm not here to teach social skills. No, 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 no. Like this isn't a place cause they're going to hate it and they will resent you bringing them here. So this is just a safe place for them to hang out and play video games. Now, do we actually learn social skills? Because here's the thing, when the kids are asking me about elements of it, I'm that safe. I'm not mom and dad telling them what to do or a therapist provider, you know, so we're talking about, oh, you know, turn taking, you know, like here's some strategies that I find helpful, but you know, you decide what feels good to you, but they're, they take it and then they're doing it. And then parents are like, well, how come they don't do this at home? They never turn take with their sibling. Oh, cause it's their sibling and cause they're at home, but we don't have those problems here and things that they're willing to do in the clubhouse looks totally different. But again, I'm a big, I have a big thing that I make parents sign what we are and what we are not. And we don't teach social skills. We coach on that if they're open to it and they want to learn more. But again, I'm not a therapy provider. I'm just Cool Holly at the Isaac Foundation at yeah. the clubhouse. That's a good rep to have, though, being Cool Holly. 
well, you know, <laughs> I'm going to flex a little bit. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Better than being it. jerk Chris, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> or, or jerk Patrick, which yeah. I'm used to playing that role. I'm the know? cool cat, man. Like, yeah. that's the thing is that, you know, oh, somebody, we have supervisors in the clubhouse. And again, you know, it's like, oh, we're only allowed two snacks. And it's like, well, let's go talk to Holly. Not that I always give in. It's just like, well, let's like think, is there something that you could help me with that would earn you an extra snack? Like, oh, you want to put those away? Perfect. That would earn you a snack. You know what I mean? As opposed to just saying, no, two snacks per person, you know, so. It's, you know, at least I'm like, a, hey, I'm open to it. Tell me what you had in mind. And then, again, negotiation skills are an important essential life skill, I think. So, yeah, you know. absolutely. Well, has a clubhouse provided areas of that you would have necessarily not thought about with working with an individual and then you get to observe them and then able to take that information and pass it on to parents to where they can come up with additional strategies? That's a good question. Um, most of the time, the parents feel really guilty because the the whole plan, the, the, the premise of it is, is the parents need to stay with their child to help them feel comfortable when they're first starting the clubhouse. Like, it's totally fine. But usually it doesn't last very long. And then it's like, okay, you can leave now. And so sometimes their parents are then sitting in their cars and we have lots of windows and they're looking in. But then it gets to the point where it's like, you can just drop me off and leave. And so then the parents are feeling kind of guilty about it. It's like, you know, I feel bad because, you know, I feel like I'm not there and I, I'm interested, but like, they seem so independent and like this is their space that they don't need us. So we just don't want you to think we're just, we don't care. And it's like, no, like you are doing your job and you're just disconnecting from this because if we start getting too much parent input, then again, it's kind of killing it for the kids in the mm -hmm. sense that it feels like, wait a minute, you're telling my mom X, Y, or Z. And now they're trying to play this game with me at home where now I'm yeah. doing some of the things that I do here, but I don't do at home because there's a whole nother thing going on. So, Really what I do is I, I'm more assuring parents. It's like, uh, if you are getting two hours of downtime where you can go run some errands, like that's pretty valuable. So it's cool. They're doing great, but I'm kind of letting it be, we call it Isaac's clubhouse. And you know, the premise of a clubhouse is what happens at the clubhouse stays at the clubhouse. Not to say if we have some, you know, behavior that we need to work on or some kids have to build up to being able to stay the full two hours because they just get overstimulated or too hyper or whatnot. Um, then we just say, Hey, let's try maybe an hour and 45 minutes. And, you know, then we can just, you know, tick, you know, play around with the time, but I kind of am keeping it within, cause there's, I don't feel like there's anything that we haven't been able to handle or deal with or work towards. And so again, that whole clubhouse mindset is that, you know, this is like our space. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of been now on the Saturday group, cause on Saturdays we run all ages, all abilities. It's a little bit different because, you know, we do want to provide some feedback about the one thing I will tell families is that, you know, their kids will say they're terrible with remembering everybody's name. So now I have a picture Polaroid wall of the kids so that they recognize because it's like, well, you know, that kid in the blue coat. And then I'm like, which kid in the blue coat? Like, who was wearing a blue coat? Because they made a connection, but they don't know who it is. And so sometimes I will tell parents that like one young lady says, oh, yeah, you know, that boy wants to date me. And the dad's like, oh, yeah, OK. Um, and I was like, well, actually, you know, I, they, they actually are very, not inappropriately friendly, but there's definitely a connection between them. And the dad was like, wait, are you kidding? Because she misunderstands. You could give her a compliment, like your artwork is beautiful and that boy's going to be my husband. And you know what I'm saying? And so 
you could have pushed the feather, the, the husband or the dad over with a feather at that point. Cause he's like, wait, really? Like there's a connect. It's like, yeah, apparently they go to school together. They know each other. And so I do give them feedback when the kids have a connection and they're wanting to have outside activities, then I will say, oh yes, they are connecting with this person. So then they can take on those, um, more activities outside of the clubhouse. It, Cause that's, normal that's what we do right we build friendships and then we spend more time together when that's a good connection so i do do that it seems like um going back to your initial analogy it gives parents a chance to visit norway yes you know what i mean to and and they do have that that feeling of guilt because they're the ones that have always been there always provided and they feel like that's their obligation their duty to do that um so getting outside of that world is very foreign to them Right. Yes. But now you have a chance to go visit Norway for a couple hours and then you can come back to Spain. And Sometimes I have thing. to put some of the parents on the plane to Norway yeah. because, again, they're just so used to being that helicopter mm-hmm. because when things go bad and the thing is, is that, you know, hey, things could go bad, but we're still going to love your kid through this and they're not yeah. going to get like kicked out of the program. Yeah. And again, most of the time we can manage it because, you know, this is not our first rodeo. And again, you know, sometimes we have conversations and mostly it's, we're just adjusting time, but sometimes I have to force those parents on that airplane to get them over to Norway for just a little bit, but they love it. Yeah. Once they get there, that freedom to be able to, that feeling like, oh, this is going to be okay. Well, they start to identify, you know, as I'm the parent of this child versus, I'm a person and these are things. And I, I imagine that at some point they kind of lose that, their own self-identity. You know, what's a funny thing is the kids the other day, it came up some, the term high functioning autism came up in the clubhouse. And I think one of the kids said, you know, well, you know, I have high functioning autism. So then one of the other kids who also has high functioning autism, of course, says, what's high functioning autism? And I was like, well, that's a really, let's talk about terminology. So, you know, we all know that we all have autism, but sometimes people have, you know, like additional descriptors. And so high functioning is, means that you're very capable and can be very independent, but you still need support. I said, but another term that I've heard is high level. And the kids are like, ooh, high level. I really like high level and they're flipping their hair high level. I'm high. I have high level autism. I'm just, yeah, I like that. And I was like, Hey, perfect. You know what I mean? So they were going around testing all out. But again, it's just, you know, they talked about bullying at one point, you know, in terms of what does that look like for you and how, in what ways do you feel like you're bullied? You know? So we have interesting conversations, you know, one, I did have my conversation with the kids about how to swear. Um, and again, we don't go out saying the mother of all swear words. Again, what is the F word? We had to talk about what is the F word? People say, don't say the F word, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> Let me tell you. But we don't say those ones. And then we have rules. There are rules about how you can swear when it's appropriate. Um, again, volume is important. And the kids are like, oh, 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 yeah. Now, people will say, well, did you talk to their parents first? Nope, I did not. Because, you know, the thing about it is, is these are tweens and teens. I mean, these are kids in high school. The reality of it is, is that they're wanting to start doing things that are typical for their age group. And again, this is kind of that clubhouse thing. Now, again, there's rules. First rule is, is that you have to talk to your parents about it and you have to, you only get, you know, these three and you can only use them three times and it has to be at home with your parents' supervision. Because again, if you're going to start, you need the feedback, you know? So there's rules. So parent, will parents find out about it? Yeah, but it's very low level, you know, crap. You know, it's not the worst of all worlds. So, um, you know, it's very safe. But again, one of the things the kids want to do, well, can we have a movie night on a Friday night? 
okay, yeah, well, talk to me about this. What kind of movie would we watch? Well, they want to watch The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, man. Massacre. Yeah. Good Friday Night Flick. Oh, right? Okay, but the thing about it is, and the parents are like, oh, my gosh, no. And it's like, what do you think the other high school kids are doing? You know what I'm saying? So maybe not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Maybe you start out with Gremlins because in the big scheme of things, it's, you know, not the scariest movie in the world. And there are some kids that it's just not a good idea depending on what the content is and just concerns that we have specific to that child. But the newsflash parents is that we can't keep them in bubble wrap for the rest of their life. We want them to be independent, but then we're not letting them experience some of the things that are very neurotypical for their age group. And, you know, our kids are about three to five years socially and emotionally behind. So maybe we're not at Annabelle level scary movie. Okay. But could we be at the gremlin level of scary movie? Can we keep the lights on so it's not as scary? You know what I'm saying? So now, are there going to be still some of my clubhouse kids that would just want to watch a Disney movie? Yes. And that's why we have a Friday night this night and it's a Disney movie and all the little girls and some of the boys that love to sing all the songs can come and they can build that out and nobody's going to care that you're disrupting the movie. And then maybe we do like just put our toe in the pond and test out what is, what would it be like to let our kids have some of that autonomy to be neurotypical like their peers and do some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always interesting to me when parents want their, their child to learn social skills and to be social but then are sheltering them so much that it's almost disabling the amount of sheltering because you can't, yeah. you can't go into a social situation without some exposure to what, what all the other kids are being exposed to and be expected to, to fit into that mold. You know, you, you don't have any context for it. How, no. do you, how do you talk about a scary movie? And there's lots of people that are terrified by gremlins. If you, you know, yes, if that's, if that's them, the just, light one that you're introduced to and yeah. you can bring that up and be like, I'm one yeah, of those movies people. sound scary, but man, let me tell you, if you eat after midnight, like things, things get out of hand. Yes. So. Yeah. And it's not going to be right for all of the kids, but again, we can't keep holding them back. We want them to be as neurotypical and independent as possible, but not giving them the context to understand it. It's the other thing too, is we, you know, understand slang, you know, like a lot of them are not comfortable asking their parents about, well, this kid at school said, blah, 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 blah. What does that mean? Okay, but you know what? Let's talk about it because you know what? Someone's got to talk about it. Well, Holly, I'd like to thank you again for joining us today. This has been a really awesome opportunity to learn about the Isaac Foundation and the things that you do within the context of the foundation. Um, and Chris, I want to say thank you as well for joining us because I, it always makes it more fun when there's more than just two people in the room. I have to be honest. Most of the time I'm, I'm training and I don't have the opportunity to sit down and have a good conversation with the two of you. So it's been lovely on my end. Awesome. Yeah, it's been great. It's been, yeah, tremendous for everything. I always learn a, learn a ton when I get to talk with you. So I look forward to these conversations. Uh, for people that want to get a hold of you, how, how do they go about that in terms of a web presence? Sure. Our, our website is theisaacfoundation.org. And so that's the word the, T-H-E. And Isaac is very tricky. I-S-A-A-C. Two A's. And then also, as many organizations, we're very prolific on social media. So Facebook in particular, if we have an event, you're going to read about it on social media. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. And until next time, uh, you've been listening to the Integrated Interventions Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Dundas, and we'll see you next time.